Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Our series during Lent is called Christ in You, where we're taking a look at each of six or so different spheres of life and asking, what does it look like when Jesus not only steps into my life, but then he now lives in me and through me to be a blessing to those around me. And I just wanna uh, remind you, encourage you uh, during our season of Lent, I'm encouraging all of us to read the Gospel of Matthew together, um, focusing our mind on the voice of our Father, what he has said to us through scripture. You can't think of a much better way to prepare the heart for what's gonna happen on Good Friday and prepare the heart for what's gonna happen on Easter. And so just wanna encourage you to be in scripture. Um, encourage you toward fasting. I put forward a few ideas at the beginning of Lent of ways that you can take the mind and the heart and point them toward the provision of God. Um, just the fact that Jesus, while he's fasting, says man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That tells us a lot about fasting. That tells us a lot. And particularly when you ask yourselves biblically through, you see fasting, what is it usually, what's usually going on? Usually what we see going on is people mourning their own sin or the sins of their people. Anybody don't have any sin left? Nothing to mourn? You're good, right? And so mourning one's sin is preparation for a celebration. I know that's a very weird word, celebration of the cross of Christ. We are saying, Jesus, I am so sorry for how much my sin cost you. Thank you for saving me, right? Uh, it is much happier to prepare the heart for Christmas, amen? There's no immediate dark side. There's no immediate downside. But Easter is brutal because you cannot get to resurrection without death, Right? Wasn't Pastor Dennis preaching that one last summer? That was on your heart? Okay. We want resurrection, just nobody wants to die. Okay. So we're doing something very hard and important, saying this is what my sin cost my Savior, but mourning one's own sin, which needs to happen. Right? How many of you guys know if you love Jesus Christ, sin is dying a horrible death. It's nailed to the cross of Christ. It's going to lose. Right? That's exciting. Anyway, uh, so th these, are, these are my encouragements to you to be talking to the Lord and listening to the Lord through reading a scripture and fasting from something uh, during this time to point your heart toward him. Uh, before we get teaching, I have a, a really fun little tidbit, something practical I learned recently that I want to throw your way. Do you know how to be late to church without worrying about it? Any ideas? It's daylight savings. You don't know it's daylight savings. And the only clock you have that automatically sets is your iPhone, which is currently playing Cocomelon for your two-year-old in another room. So my apologies to the leaders who were freaking out this morning, texting me. I want you to know you guys freaked me out because I'm just casually, I've never enjoyed a cup of coffee so much while I was late because I didn't know I was late. I'm sitting there watching the littles, cup of coffee and all that until... Dennis and Steve freak me out. I've got multiple missed calls and texts. And I go, oh, I wonder why. And then, but the most recent text, the one that popped up, was from Steve saying, we're gathering people to pray. And I'm like, oh no, what happened? <laughs> like, 
Like, did somebody die on the way to church? What happened? It was Steve just saying, hey, we're, we're pulling the prayer huddle together. So praise the Lord. <laughs> we're all here. But I have to say, I've never seen so many cars in the parking lot because I'm always here earlier. So that was kind of exciting. So. Week three. Wasn't me. <laughs> it's fine. Um, week three, we are talking about Jesus in my friendships. Is friendship important enough that Jesus will invade it and glorify the Father through it? That's really the question. We know the answer. Um, so, oh, the back screen. No, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll go off of that one. I'll go off of that one. I let the first point slip. How embarrassing. Uh, did anybody not have sermon notes who would like to have sermon notes? We can get those to you. Okay. So the fill in the blanks uh, are coming. You ready? No, no, you're not. I don't want Jesus in my friendships. Um, so let me just say, this is always true, but it was really true this week. It is such a blessing to preach, not because I like the sound of my own voice, but because the prep does so much for the person who's gonna teach it. Uh, what a blessing to find out the things about friendship, specifically from the book of Proverbs that I'm hopefully gonna share clearly. Um, wrong button. Note takers. I can show Jesus to a friend through faithfulness during tough times. Did you know that? Don't run away. Has anybody ever run away when you're, you think you're friends with somebody and something bad happens to them? I don't know. You're in the Mount of Olives and somebody comes up and kisses them on the cheek and you run away naked. No? I did that. You guys know that when one man betrayed and 11 men ran, you know we all participated in that, right? Just like I wasn't in the Garden of Eden and neither were you, but we've participated in that. We've seen friendship at its worst. What did Jesus say is friendship at its best? Greater man has no, then, no love than this, laying down his life for his friend, right? I'm behind because my Bible's in the other room. Would somebody read Proverbs 17, 17 to us? Would you just turn to it and read it loud? I am not with it today. A brother is born for adversity. Oh man, praise the Lord. So junior high was not my favorite. I don't know about you guys. Some of you still in it. Um, I had a dad who loved Jesus and he loved me. I had a mom who loved Jesus, loved me, and my parents loved each other. And that, those handful of facts already put me in a very, very privileged place to enter into the phase of life where we're frantically trying to figure out who we are. And yet, it still was really, really, really not fun. But I had a bestie named Dan Helgeson, a very, very cool guy. Dan knew he was not cool, and he wasn't trying to be. I knew I was not cool. I wasn't trying to be neither of us. 
were on the basketball team, neither of us were straight A students. If there was a picture of mediocrity at our school, <laughs> we were there. And we were somehow, we survived. And years later, thanks to the glories of Facebook, you know, 20 years later, you're like, I wonder how so-and-so's doing. Dan still loves and is following the Lord, and that's exciting to see. Um, that's a good picture, isn't it? Of a friendship where I cannot gain a whole lot from hanging out with you. Like, you're not cool, so I'm not borrowing any glory, right? You're not popular, so I'm not, I'm not specifically gaining anything. But let's just hang out. Let's just hang out. And there's something pure and there's something innocent there. Um, looking back, I, I see Dan was struggling just as much as I was with junior high. You want it to feel like brotherhood? Let's see if it stands the test of time of adversity. We don't know who we are, we're not cool, we're flailing around, and he's still here. Man, thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, Lord, for Dan. Encouragement to you. If you love Jesus, I want you to consider, evaluate your responses to the crises of those around you. You may need to step up. And I say may. Sometimes we overdo it and we don't have boundaries. But sometimes, a lot of times, we might be oblivious. Anybody here heard of a friend's need and just immediately felt a lot of guilt, like, I should have known? You were oblivious. Sometimes it was coincidental. It wasn't purposeful. If a brother was born for adversity... Sometimes I need to know that adversity is happening. And I can show that faithfulness. I can show up, manifest in a presence like Jesus would. How would Jesus walk into this crisis, right? I have one daughter, and she's dying. And I hear of a Jewish teacher who can heal people and I send somebody to go and find the teacher and beg him to come. I'm hoping that this is a teacher who cares about my adversity. The teacher doesn't stand to gain anything from coming and helping me. I'm just desperate. Right? And Jesus loves people so much that he doesn't respond to my need as fast as I would hope. Because there's a woman grasping at his robe. And she's desperate too. If a friend was born for adversity, then there's no friend like Jesus. He came for stuff like that. Covered in shame for 13 years. Spent all your money on doctors and only got worse. No hope, no husband, 
no future through children in a culture that makes a huge deal out of that. Levitical law says I can't go to the temple and worship God. Jesus was born for challenges like that. And 20 centuries later, when you've got four or five different reasons layered on top of each other, why somebody should not want to be my friend, should not want to be present in my crisis, stands to gain nothing, Jesus was there. He was born for adversity. He sees us in our mess and he steps up to the plate. Brothers and sisters, when we look at our own capacity to be a friend, do we look, not digging, but do we look for crisis in brothers and sisters' lives where we can be a blessing? Because in a distraction, screen-based culture, I could really miss a lot, right? This is the, pope, this is the uh, pot calling the kettle black, because I'm the worst at it, right? Some of us just need to be told. Some of us, if you put on the fake smiley face on Sunday morning, we might not see past it. It's gonna work. And we need to be told, right? This is why I've done you dirty for four years. Disciple groups have 40 minutes of sharing how your week was to get prayed for. I am making it so hard, as hard as I possibly can, for you to go into group and put on the fake face and make it 40 minutes, oh, we're gonna get you. We're gonna get you. We're gonna find out what's really going on because we love you so much. And we're gonna take you before the throne of grace. A friend was born for adversity. The friend that you have in your life, that's a really good friend, God gave them to you for the tough times, not just for the good times. Next, a true friend loves me enough to say hard things. Loves me enough to say hard things. Somebody who's got your Bible in front of you, you're only shortly, just a page or two, 27 verse six. Thank you. Yeah, and who doesn't love multiple kisses? I mean, come on. An enemy multiplies kisses. That is really good wisdom for us, isn't it? When you think of a wound, I don't know about you, I think of immediately bandaging it and caring for the wound. Let's undo what was done. I'm not thinking of the trust continuum, trust it or don't trust it, because the wound isn't a physical blow, it's words, it's hard words from a friend. And that's why he says trusted, right? Oh, when a friend says something hard, and my, what, what does my flesh do? What does your flesh do? defenses go up. Oh yeah, get the log out of your own eye. Anybody here wanna own that? You've thrown a Bible verse at somebody who was trying to, <laughs> okay, just me, that's all right. No, We do that. If you're defensive, you'll throw any semi-logical thing 
at the person. You'll shoot the messenger, so to speak. If you're a Christian whose defense is, you might throw Bible verses at him. Out of context, Bible verses. Oh, yeah. And that's the old self. That's the old Greg. He's nailed to the cross. He's toast. I need to quit acting like he's alive, but man, he wants to defend, right? But scripture says, Greg, you can trust what a brother says to you. A close friend is not, you know, saying hard things to you to damage you. He might be loving you enough to damage your flesh, right? Isn't that what truth from the Lord does? I think the number one root of dusty Bible syndrome is I'm tired of God telling me things I don't want to hear, right? God loves me so much, he keeps wounding me. I keep reading, and ouch, ouch, ouch. Even the best verses in the Bible hurt. Did you know that? If you're new to the Bible, you need to know this. You could open the scripture and Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another. And if you have any honesty whatsoever, you go, right? Because the scripture is a scalpel. It's cutting inside me, exposing what is. My love could be a lot better if I'm willing to take the scriptures and hold it up like a mirror. Jesus loves me so much that he tells me the truth and he wants followers of Jesus to tell each other the truth. That's what teaching ministry is. And I'm not talking about the spiritual gift of teaching. Teaching is commanded to the saints repeatedly, not just, oh, this person's an elder or something. I'm not talking about that. Another important scripture says, speak the truth in love. That's to protect the religious jerks from being religious jerks. Don't cross your T's theologically and just throw it at somebody, right? You're acting like nobody's done that to you. Well, it's happened to me. I've heard things that were true, and I was wrong. I was in sin. And the way it was delivered kind of stung a little bit more than it needed to. And to be sure... I've been on the giving end of that, to be sure. That's why scripture says, speak the truth in love. Before you talk to the person, dig down deep and go, man, how much do I love this person? What are all the reasons why that they are my brother or sister? And from that place, from a place of pain, guys, it should hurt. It, should, it hurts me, I don't want to wound you, but I know that I have to for the sake of your soul's health. And so from a place of hurt, I share, hey, I think Jesus wants you to speak more respectfully to your spouse. I just want to submit that to you. I think that you weren't particularly patient with your grandson, and I've seen a pattern, and I just want to point that out to you. I am not judging you. I want fruit in your life for your own blessing and for God's glory. Right. There was a prophet with some serious cojones who decided to talk to the most powerful man in Israel. 
This guy, David, not only had thousands and thousands of men that would quickly and gladly die for him, they all had swords. And you hear God tell you what David did and you know what David did and God tells you to go confront David. I want to talk to Nathan when I get to heaven. Wow. So Nathan goes to David and gives him an image of a wealthy man stealing the sheep, the only sheep of a poor man, when in fact the wealthy man already had lots of sheep and slaughtered that little lamb and gave it as dinner to his guests, if I recall the story correctly. But the point is, Nathan is doing a big Holy Spirit rope-a-dope. Who here knows what the rope-a-dope is? I'm gonna sucker you in. He helps David see the obvious injustice of what David had done without David at first realizing Nathan was talking about him. Stealing a wife. Stealing a wife from a friend, no less. And so when David, in righteous indignation, says, what that man should die for what he has done, what does Nathan say? It's you. Something I can't know for sure, but theologians have written about it extensively and it's really interesting. We see a tragic verse near the end of Judges that says, but the Holy Spirit had left Samson, but Samson didn't realize it. That's tragic. How are you choosing such carnality over and over and over again that you don't even feel the Holy Spirit left? David apparently knows this because he prays a prayer in one of the Psalms saying, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He prays that, he fears it. Maybe he saw that with Saul. But there's no evidence in Scripture ever given that the Holy Spirit left David which is pretty intense when you think of all of his sins. What we see over and over is a man who does not shoot the messenger, but he repents. He receives, in this case, unbelievable mourning and repent. Like, he wants to hear truth from his creator and his savior, even when it hurts. Brothers and sisters, are we called to speak the truth in love only to those who will receive it? In fact, sometimes we really don't know how the person's gonna receive it. I've shared before, but it was one of the bigger ones in my life. My poor wife struggled through about seven years of marriage to me with my dreamer working full blast. What this meant is everything that I was thinking of doing, I said it so confidently like it was already happening. And we're doing this, and this is gonna happen, and this is gonna happen. 
And I wouldn't get any immediate pushback because they were positive things. They were ministry ideas, what have you. Generally, people would be excited. But then what would happen is 80% of it would never occur. And it was because I was dreaming aloud and stating stuff confidently, just really kind of ready, fire, aim. And Emily had tried multiple times to talk to me about it, and I didn't have the humility or whatever it was to hear her. And so she had to bring in the big guns, and she brought in my best friend, Ken, and sat me down. It was like an intervention about eight years ago, seven years ago. And thankfully, the way that Ken said it or whatever it was, I heard him. And I was a pastor, and he was sitting down and opening up scripture and saying, we ought to say, if the Lord allows, we will go here or we will go there and make a profit. All other such boasting is evil. So that phrase, Lord willing, even if I don't say it out loud a lot, it's inside my head a lot. It is boasting to say something confidently about tomorrow. Like, didn't, didn't God say of a wealthy man who built barns, hey, your soul's gonna be demanded of you tonight, then what's gonna happen with your wealth? And it breaks my heart that uh, Emily had to bring in the big guns to get through to me, but I'm grateful that she did it. I'm grateful for Ken. When somebody comes to you and says a hard thing, are they your enemy or are they your friend? See, when you're driving, if somebody or even technology makes you aware that there's someone in your blind spot, they're protecting you and the person in your blind spot. There's blessing in multiple directions all from a presupposition that you cannot see everything. Do you hear that's just about pride? That's just about pride. If I go really, really comfortable with the idea that I can't see everything, I can't know everything, from that place of humility, my sisters and brothers in the church can tell me what I'm not seeing. Whew. Which is, this is a pragmatic argument, not a doctrinal one one of the re pragmatic reasons why I affirm plurality of eldership. You do a senior pastor model, you're gonna build everything off of the strengths and the weaknesses of the point person. And it doesn't always go well. Sometimes they get on the evening news that way. So. Here's the next step. Humbly assess and receive a wound from a friend. It hurts, you've got your defenses up. Don't fight back, don't fire back. Take a deep breath, actually lots of deep breaths. Get a good night's sleep. Ask the Lord about it extensively the next morning with the scriptures open. Get a nice breakfast, all your primal needs are met. And now take that thing that you were told to your wife so she can let you know, oh yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I wasn't joking. Your spouse already knows about 90% of the time <laughs> if you're married. 
I wanna encourage you, because this is another thing the Lord rebuked, on me, rebuked me of a number of years ago. Be careful, even if you have an incredible friendship with your spouse, don't make deity out of your spouse by bringing God-sized problems to them first. Uh, about yeah, seven years ago, and this is very specific, but it's what I felt like the Lord told me. Um, I felt like the Lord told me practically and, and specifically, Greg, don't tell Emily about it until you've prayed about it for at least 30 minutes. Again, that's not in scripture. I'm not passing it along to you. You feel obligated. But I realized I was taking the biggest hurts and the biggest angers and I was dumping it onto Emily because she's such a great listener and she's such a great friend. And yet, her shoulders were not meant to bear the weight of the world. I'm supposed to go to my savior and my creator first and there are things that he is going to shoulder. And after I see what's God-sized, I can take smaller things to my best friend for processing, for empathy, for wisdom from the Holy Spirit through her. Um, whatever that looks like for you, assess and receive. Sometimes we feel like somebody just threw a bunch of mud at us, but a wise prospector knows there might be one little nugget of gold somewhere in that mud and sludge. And so you're gonna work through it slowly and carefully. It's gonna take patience sometimes. And if there's a nugget in there, then that's a blessing. Be selfish. There's a, some, some of the best Christianity is really, really selfish Christianity. If I want blessing, I'm gonna humbly receive what feels like mud at first. Third, showing up with poor theology to comfort a friend will likely be a disaster. Showing up with poor theology to comfort a friend will likely be a disaster. We're not gonna turn to Job because it's all over the map to prove the point, and so let me just briefly tell the story in case you're new to church. Around the time of the patriarchs, either slightly before or around the time that Abraham was living, there was a guy named Job who loved and feared God. He also happened to be very wealthy. And <clears throat> Satan says to God, Job only honors you because he's got it easy. Take away everything he has and he'll curse you to your face. And God says, game on. I keep wanting to point this out to you. Um, if the point, if, if Yahweh's purpose in the cosmos is his own glory, then this story makes sense. But if it's only ever to make life easy and better for you and I, what the prosperity gospel teaches, then Job will not make any sense. God is showing off in the heavenly places that he has taken such a passion and love and put it inside Job's heart. He's showing to the heavenlies, Job will not curse me even though He'd be crushed. And so all 10 of Job's children die on the same day. And he's afflicted with sores all over his body. I can't imagine why the sores would matter if my children were dead. I've never understood that part of the text. But the point is it was bad. 
and Job's wife proves to be of no help. And these three friends show up who at first seem to be really amazing friends. That's why verses 11 through 13 show up, show up here. on the. When you look at that part of Job 2, you're going to see they see that his grief is too great for words, and they sit, which is culturally appropriate and probably something we need to try today. They sit in the dust and ashes with Job for an entire week saying nothing. And that was the only thing in the entire book that they got right. Because as soon as they opened their mouth, they got bad. The dominant chunk of the book of Job is the conversation between Job and the three friends. And there are a lot of problems and some cool things in the middle of the book. But the fundamental problem for these three friends is they do not understand the relationship between God and man. We call that theology. Don't be scared by that word. What is your relationship to God? What is God's relationship to you? What do you believe about that? That's theology. And they cannot get away from the belief that human suffering would only happen if you had sinned. They believe, ultimately, that Job sinned. He's maybe not aware of it. Job, dig deeper. You had to have done something. Karma comes back around. Yeah, in the 21st century, we've totally let go of this, right? So no matter what other flowery language they use, they are still ultimately blaming Job for his own suffering. When the first two chapters of the book give us the cosmic view and we know that Job hasn't done anything. And by chapter 16, verse 2, one of the more important statements of the book what miserable comforters are you all? And poor Job, more than two-thirds of the book still happened after that statement. You guys are horrible friends. I haven't done anything. I've searched my heart. I love God. I fear God. And now I'm suffering, and I don't know the reason why. But instead of continuing to just sit with me in the dust or provide aid of some kind, instead of praying for me, like anybody notice Job's friends don't pray for him? You come here and shove your theology on me that, well, for sure, Job, you've sinned. For sure, you deserve this. And now I am suffering spiritual abuse in addition to physical, emotional, and relational Anybody ever had this happen before? Had a brother or sister tell you something that they believed was true, but it was wrong, and the error was painful. The error made things worse. It's kind of like, I don't know, you're walking through a, small town in North Carolina, you're in a car accident and you've got a broken arm and all of a sudden, Gomer Pyle is here to help. 
explain to the millennial next to you what's going on, please. We don't need Gomer Pyle really ever unless the objective is comic relief. I do not need him when my arm is broken. Okay? What makes a comic relief character what they are is they have this very loose relationship with reality. If, if this person was in our life, uh, in real life, it would cause all kinds of problems. But in a sitcom, it's great. I don't need you to be so deeply and consistently misguided. I need you to show up knowing who your creator is and knowing to some degree who I am and knowing how the relationship between God and man is utterly defined by the cross and the empty tomb and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I need somebody to show up who brings wisdom and blessing. Not some information that they read in a book. Particularly if that information is wrong. My encouragement to you, if you love Jesus, cherish the Bible every day to become a wise and helpful friend. I was piecing this together Thursday morning and I really wanted to say, read your Bible. Man, that's been said so many times. I feel like it just goes past the prefrontal cortex and just, okay, how about I say study the Bible? That's a little bit more honest. I want people to really dig in. I've said that too, but like what actually gets, what is at the root of behavior? What we value. Guys, I ate terrible food for 37 years because of what I valued. And then something came along into my life that said, Greg, if you value being alive, maybe you should make some changes. My values changed and behavior flows out of that. Brothers and sisters, I want to say that we desperately need to read our Bibles and that's true. I want to say that we really, really need to study our Bibles, and that is true. But it might be more helpful to say we've got to figure out how to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The 119th Psalm talks a lot about desire. The let, let, me, let me break it down for you if you're not familiar. The 119th Psalm does not say, I am highly devoted to your precepts because that's the good Christian thing to do. Doesn't say that. I'm highly devoted to your commands because that's what is expected of me. I'm highly devoted to memorizing Bible verses because that's what my parents expect of me. 119th Psalm says none of that. In the 119th Psalm, the psalmist says things like, I love your commands. I love hearing my father speak, and even when it hurts. 
I love hearing my father speak. His words are life to me. I can't live by food alone, but by everything that my father says. Brothers and sisters, we have got to figure out how to cherish our Father's voice. It's going to do so many things in our life, but one of the things it's going to do, it's going to make us a wise and helpful friend. Let me use a negative analogy. The phrase that we talk about, showing up with a knife to a gunfight, right? You're not equipped for what you walked into. Job's three friends showed up to a gunfight. They were going toe-to-toe with Satan and circumstances under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. They're facing suffering, and all they've got is this lousy understanding of the relationship between God and man, and they were not equipped for it. Brothers and sisters, we can't communicate the mercy of God to our friend who's hurting unless we keep staring into the face of our merciful God. Does that make sense? I can't tell my friend that God is just in an accurate way unless I keep staring into the justice of God. I need to have been with my Savior probably daily. So that Jesus that I've walked with this morning, he's the one that I bring into the conversation when you're hurting. I came to work. I was at my desk by eight o'clock. I got my computer warmed up. And at the 10.15 coffee break, I've got a friend who has trusted me enough to share what's going on. And the Jesus that I bring at 10.15 might be the same Jesus I'm spending time with at 5.30. All right? I want to be a good friend. What about you guys? I know my own long list of failures, but we repent forward by the mercy of God. And I'm going to have to know my Savior to rightly bring him. Guys, there was a man who couldn't walk. And the crowds were pressing in around Jesus in this house. And they're like, how are we going to get our friend who can't walk to Jesus? Oh, I know what we're going to do. We're going to go up on the roof and we're going to dig a hole. Right? We're going to destroy property. We're going to be financially liable for what happens. If, if a chunk of clay falls and hits somebody's head, we're going to be reliable for that. We're going to go through tremendous personal and financial risk. And we're going to lower our friend on his mat right there in front of Jesus. We've got to figure this out. Brothers and sisters, they had to be at the right house if their friend was going to get Jesus. How tragic would that have been if they'd been at the wrong house? (laughs) It matters. Our world is filled with false messiahs. You've got to bring people to the right Jesus. And going in the workplace with friendships, uh, we're bringing that Jesus to them. Hopefully it's the Jesus of the Bible and not one we made up. An important thing to remember uh, before I pray for us. There was no greater act of friendship than Jesus' death on a cross for you and for me. 
That was the biggest one. It's the one that has the most impact. For all the things we experience in friendship here in this life, when we are in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be singing praises forever to the one with nail-pierced hands. The greatest friend ever. The one who, amongst all the things that he suffered, one of the things he suffered was this weird accusation. He's the friend of sinners. You know that's weird, right? The person saying it is upset because they can't see that they're a sinner. So they think that's an accusation. If by the Holy Spirit's power, you're able to see that you're a sinner, that's the greatest news in the world. Oh, I'm so glad. What a friend we have in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it is our friendship with Jesus, which didn't come about because I died for him, he died for me, that we take into Citrus Heights, we take to our brothers and sisters who don't know Christ, our father who doesn't know Christ, our son who doesn't know Christ, our niece who doesn't know Jesus, friends in the workplace, friends in, in your hobby, social groups that you're a part of. We take the friendship of Jesus as our model and as our marching orders. Jesus is a friend who sacrifices. Jesus is a friend who enters in. Jesus is a friend who's loving and compassionate and merciful. And this isn't in the notes. It's for free. Jesus is the one who came up to sinners, had every right to judge, and didn't. Brothers and sisters, our world loves to say, or the one verse they know, judge not lest you be judged. And that is a beautiful opportunity for us to share the gospel because sin does have a price that is paid. God judged Jesus on our behalf and our sins were nailed to his cross if we would only accept it. Yeah, I am not judging you. God the Father was the one who was angry at sin. He judged Jesus on your behalf. I'm so glad you brought it up. Let's talk about the cross. Let's talk about the greatest friendship ever. And by telling you about the greatest friendship ever, I have now become the best friend to you I can possibly be. Let me pray for you and for me. Jesus, we cannot thank you enough. How powerful that right before we abandoned you, you said, We're not gonna, I'm not gonna call you a slave servant relationship anymore, I'm gonna call you friend. Just as Abraham was called the friend of God, you brought the same thing to your church. Thank you. God, I ask for two things. Would you allow each person here in this room to feel your love and friendship? Maybe 
feel your friendship for the first time because they have trusted you for the first time. <coughs> God, secondly, I ask that you would take the saints in the room and allow these proverbs, allow interaction with Job's friends, allow the cross to stir around in our hearts that we would assess the way that we are being friends to others. And God, lead us to a place, maybe we can do it today, maybe it's later this week, maybe it takes a little while. God, take the saints to a place where we take all of our friendships and we lay them at your feet. We say, Jesus, my friends are yours. I trust them to your stewardship. Help me to love them well. Help me to serve them well. Give me opportunity to share the gospel with them. Our friendships are not our own, Lord. They are yours. Just like every other part of life, it's all yours, Lord. God, help us during this time of mourning our own sin, this time of fasting, this time of prayer, this time of reading scripture. God, help every heart here to have the most spiritually impactful Good Friday we've ever had. And help us to have the most joy-filled Easter that we've ever had. Not for the experience that it brings us, God, but for the praise that it brings you. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. God's people said. Love you guys. Have a good week.